Welcome to the Sports Entrepreneur Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Luhr, and I'm very excited to have no other than Mr. Donadell, a true living legend in our industry, on the phone with me here today. He is one of the founding fathers of the sports agent and sports marketing industry, and we have been friends for nearly 20 years, done business together, and I truly consider Donald as one of my mentors in the industry. So I'm very thrilled to have him here today. Um, but before we get started, I'd love to give you a quick highlights on his tremendous career. Uh, he started as a professional tennis player during the amateur area uh, in the 1960s. He represented the U.S. team at the Davis Cup and played various Grand Slam tournaments. He captained the team and won the event undefeated in 1968 and 69. Uh, that was the year I was born. And uh, in uh, on the back of it, was inducted into the Tennis Hall of Fame. Uh, he started his law firm uh, after his playing career and really turned his passion for sports into a business, representing some of the top names in tennis from Arthur Ashe, Stan Smith, Jimmy Connors, Ivan Lendl, just to name a few, and then also branched into basketball and you know, representing Michael Jordan, his heirness, and Patrick Jewing and many others. So ProSurf, uh, the agency he founded in 1976, became a true giant in the industry with 300 people in 16 offices around the world, and at that time really only second to IMG, uh, covering many things from media rights for the U.S. Open tennis to TV production, Olympics, and others. So Donald also teaches law, sports law, at uh, Virginia Law School and has written two best-selling books, Mind Other People's Business and Never Make the First Offer Except When You Should in 2009. Uh, great books, would highly recommend to read them. So without further ado, welcome to the Sports Entrepreneur Podcast, Donald. Well, thanks, Marcus, for all those wonderful lies. <laughs> but I've enjoyed it. <laughs> I've enjoyed it for a long time, and I've enjoyed uh, our relationship, which has been, as you said, over 20 years. So I'm happy to uh, participate in this uh, first podcast and try to answer some of your thoughts and questions, and let's see where we go. Absolutely. And, and as I said, I'm very thrilled and excited to have you here and, and start with you. So um, as we do in sports, uh, we do a little bit of a warm-up here. Um, so you know, you ha I'd love to hear you know, one or two of your favorite stories of your illustrious career. Um, you know, maybe you know, tell us a bit about how you started ProServe or even you know, how, you, how you started your playing career. Well, it's a funny situation. I did play Davis Cup uh, myself in singles and doubles uh, five times for America in the 60s. Hmm. And remember, the game of tennis went open in 1968, which meant pros could play with amateurs and there could be prize money. But I retired from tennis in 66. I had gone to law school at Virginia and was going went back to a big law firm in Washington to practice in the trial division, uh, which was uh, Hogan and Hartson was the name of the law firm. But in 68 and 69, I was asked to come back and run the uh, Davis Cup team. And two of my great, well, we had four players on the team that were quite remarkable. Uh, Arthur Ashe, mm -hmm. uh, Stan Smith, Bobby Lutz, his doubles partner, and uh, Charlie Passarell. They were tremendous assets uh, in the game. And we managed to win for two years in 1969. Amazing. We won a second time against Tyriac um, and Nastasi right. in Cleveland. And so when we, we stopped doing that, we I decided in 1970 that I would start my own law firm. But an ironic thing happened. I took Arthur Ashe three times uh, to meet Mark McCormick for breakfast, <laughs> and I thought he would be really happy and well-served by going with Mark. And after the third breakfast, We were driving down uh, the east side of in the river uh, in New York City in a taxi, and Arthur sort of looked at me and said, how many more times are you going to do this? And I said, do what? He said, you keep taking me to Mark, and, and you know we've been there three times, and I don't feel very comfortable, very close to him. And I said, well, he's going to make you the most money, in my opinion. Mark was in golf with uh, Palmer, Player, and Nicholas, the big three of golf, yep. and he just signed John Claude Gilly in the Olympics in 68, and I said, he's going to get into tennis eventually, and he's going to make you the most money, and that's who I think you should go with. And he said, well, why don't you do it? I said, do what? And he said, why don't you manage me and represent me? And I said, no, no, I'm going back to my law firm, and I really want to be a trial lawyer. He said, well, look, we'd really have a lot of fun if you would do that. Stan would probably join us. Stan was a good friend of Arthur's, and they had been on the team together for two years. Hmm. He said, we could do it and start a new business. And so I went back to my law firm and asked the senior partner what he thought of the idea. He raved about it and said, we'll give you the fifth floor. We'll give you tax accountants, lawyers, specialists. 
and I think it's a great idea to get into sports management, right. sports marketing. And I said, what would be the name? He said, well, it would be, of course, Hogan and Hartson. So I thought about that for about three weeks and then decided that for better or for worse, I wanted to try and start it myself. But And I did, and I started to call the law offices of Donald Bell. There were two people, me and a secretary, but uh, those were just great, fun times, and we were lucky on the timing because in 1970, January, when I started, I was really the first sports agent in, in tennis anywhere in the world and really one of the first in, in, you know, in the game. Amazing. You know, was, I, I love that so story. It was fun. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> Mark, never, Mark never liked that story. I told it in my book. He said, why would you have to write that story? I said, well, it's true. That's why. <laughs> I think he did well himself, too, uh, without Arthur. Yeah. But, uh, oh, sure. He did awful well. He had labor. He had a lot of good players. <laughs> Absolutely. That is amazing. A great, great warm-up story. Now, um, obviously, from what I can see, uh, one of your clearly biggest deals and uh, you've been involved in for, for many, many years is, is Stan Smith and and the shoes uh, which Adidas is out there and I know there's some great stories behind that as well maybe you can share another one uh, you know link to that well sure you know uh, Stan uh, won Wimbledon in 1972 and he was about to join a, a, a group a package deal which I had five other players and Stan involved with a company called Converse in America and suddenly After he won the tournament, about two weeks later, I got a phone call from Horst Dossler uh, over in uh, Landersheim, France. And Horst, I didn't really know, so I really want to sign Stan Smith. Uh, you know that he just won Wimbledon. I want to put him in a new leather shoe, a different shoe. And uh, so we talked, and I, then I took Stan over to Paris, and we met with Horst personally. I, frankly, uh, Horst Dossler, in my opinion, was the best sports marketing guy I ever dealt with uh, yeah. in a business sense. He was phenomenal. He created it. You know, Adidas took him to where they were the number one country and company in the world. This is well before uh, Nike was really even on the That's on right. the scale. Yep. But uh, it's so that so he said, let's let's sign Stan. So in 1973, Stan signed a contract with Adidas and uh, Believe it or not, this same shoe he wore at Wimbledon. It was a performance shoe. It had a green tongue and has a name on name in the photo in the middle of the shoe, and Adidas on the side. And uh, he wore that shoe for about eight years playing it, playing tournaments. It was a performance. Yep. And then we turned it into they turned it into a fashion shoe. And literally for the last from '73 till January of this year, we had about eight different contracts that were renewed every three or four years and Stan stayed with Adidas for about 40 years, 43 years to be exact. And suddenly Incredible. his shoe took off in, in um, 17 and 18. The shoe, the pairs of shoes were selling all over the world as a fashion shoe. And so Adidas came in and we just uh, finalized a brand new contract effective this year for the first year. And it's an unusual contract because uh, they wanted it to be for life and forever. Mm. And what does that mean? Well, they asked for it to be in perpetuity. And so Stan today, after 40, 46 years of being with Adidas, has an agreement that The shoe will continue on probably uh, well after he dies. It would continue be paying a royalty to his family, to his estate. Uh, and so anytime they continue with the, with the Stan Smith design shoe, uh, the Smith family and Smith estate will benefit. So uh, it's quite an unusual operation and contract and one that Stan is very proud of because uh, he and Adidas have worked well together for so many years. And, and the irony of all this is I've been on a handshake with Stan for all these years. I've never had a contract with him other than my handshake, and uh, that's the way we started in 1969, 1970. Uh, I went with both Arthur and Stan the same year, and we had a one-page letter agreement, I think, in 1969. Mm -hmm. And when that expired uh, in 70, we just sort of both sides said, let's just go on a handshake. And so I managed Arthur for 27 years on a handshake and Stan Smith today for about 46 years still on a handshake. So I'm very proud of those two relationships because they're unusual, they're unique, and uh, they became great friends of myself and my family. Absolutely. Yeah, I can imagine. Now, before I go move on to some of the other parts, uh, um, well, I'd be curious because now you've been involved, obviously, in this deal, you know, from the start. And, and at the beginning, it, it was obvious he was a Wimbledon champion and, and a, you know, future Grand Slam champion. Um, and that's why they did it. Now, this is obviously, as you said, 50 years later now, um, you know, most 
kids or, or people who are probably buying Stan Smith shoe now will not know of him necessarily unless I guess they Google him. Um, and so, wh- what do you really think is is the appeal? What is, you know, I have two shoes as well, and I love it. But uh, you know, I'm a little bit older. So, but what do you think is the appeal to the younger generation there? Uh, do you, what is? I well, I think, think it's really. I think it's about three things. I think first, first of all, it's the style of the shoe. It's a, it's a uh, sleek looking leather yeah, shoe. It's a classic, it's a right? Yeah. It, yeah, it's it's a classic white leather, and it also Stan has done a great job uh, of really uh, promoting it all over the world for Adidas, and he's done that for many, many, many years, and so that's been a tremendous uh, asset. He, his quality, the person he is, but but you said today, most people don't know Stan Smith. They know the Stan Smith shoe. Correct. As, Stan, as one of Stan's children said, Dad, I'm really trying to understand, is it you? Are, are you a shoe? Or are you a person? <laughs> <laughs> and and yeah, so what's happened, really, to, to their credit, Adidas has done a phenomenal job of marketing the shoe and keeping it going, you know, about uh, six or eight years ago, the sales had been discounted all over the world. <clears throat> so they came to Stan and I and said, we'd like to go black and not sell one shoe for two years. We'll pay you a, a small percentage of your fee, but we won't sell one shoe. And then we'll start in the third year and rebuild the thing. Wow. And that's exactly what they did. And the demand really took off. Uh, in uh, the, the, We went black in uh, 12 and 13, and in 14, they brought it back, 2014, and the, th- the sales really uh, took off, that's and amazing. that's a credit to, uh, to, to really to uh, Adidas. I mean, they had different singers wearing it, celebrities wearing it, yeah. it became a fashion shoe, yeah. and that's really what, what took off, and yeah. that, that's to their credit. Amazing, I love it. Yeah, the, and it's interesting because I I have a white, which is sort of more the more common one, and I have a black version, and that's actually my favorite, and uh, the black yeah. color version, and uh, and everyone always you know is jealous because you can really not find it. So clearly they've done a great job in and truly shortening the demand there, uh, the supply side, to build up that demand. So yeah, you know, Adidas clearly has done an amazing job, and and you you've been part of that. Is uh, I love the story. Well, there. the marketing, they, yeah, they gave us Marcus. They gave gave us a 36-page marketing plan wow. when they wanted to go black and uh, six or seven years ago. And I said to Stan, if they do 50% of this marketing plan, I think you're going to be in great shape. They did 100%. Everything they gave us in that marketing plan, they honored and did. And again, it was all based on trust because we had been with them so long. They knew Stan very well. And it was just, it was a, it was a great relationship again. You know, in sports, what people really have to understand, it's all about people mm. and it's all about relationships. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's the real, real thing about sports marketing. Yeah, I totally agree. Now, before I move on, I do want to touch a little bit on Air Jordan and Nike, because I know you also played a significant role in that. And of course, you know, maybe even more people would know Air Jordan and, and, uh, and the Nike shoe. Um, tell us a bit about that. Sure. Well, Michael came out from the University of North Carolina as, as a junior, came out uh, in 1983. And in 84, he was playing for the Chicago Bulls. And uh, Adidas and Nike were both trying to sign him. And uh, two of the Nike guys came to our office in Washington. And I remember, it was I'll never forget, it was a Saturday morning, about 1030. We were sitting in my office and there were four of us. Rob Strasser, Rob Strasser was there, uh, Peter Moore. And we were just throwing around. We wanted uh, we wanted a Jordan shoe, mm-hmm. and they wanted a Nike shoe. We were fighting over you know what we were going to call it. Right. And suddenly, uh, literally out of the blue, uh, Peter Moore. And there have been many stories, but Peter Moore said, "Well, what about Air Jordan? How do you like the uh, the idea of Air Jordan?" And everybody just stopped and stunned and thought. God, what a great what idea, a great what a great name. Mm. And he really was the one, you've heard stories all over this one, and thought it up, somebody else thought it up, Jordan did, somebody I did. That's all baloney. Peter Moore <laughs> thought of the word Air Jordan, and we jumped at it, and uh, and that's how it got started. Right. And the first contract was a five-year contract uh, with Michael and Nike, and it was called the Air Jordan Shoes. When that period was almost over, after about four years, Phil Knight, who who was a good friend, uh, came to me and said, uh, you know, let's do another deal, but I want to talk about, you know, royalties and so forth. And so in the second contract, uh, we got very lucky. We we made we did something a little different. We got a five percent royalty, I believe, on his shoe, the name shoe. 
but we also secretly got a second bucket of a royalty of 3% on all basketball shoes sold by Nike. And at that time, Nike took off in basketball, and they really started dominating all over America. So that second bucket of 3% very, very quickly, which we didn't talk about to anybody, got bigger and bigger and bigger. And suddenly, Phil came to me and said, look, let's sit down and talk about a new deal, but let's let's stop paying all these royalties. Uh, <laughs> let's really let's really though. build a company. And so, uh, by that time, Michael had been with me ten years, uh, and he was leaving to, to go on with uh, someone else. And and the, the deal that w- we worked out was a twenty nine year contract for a company called Jump Inc. Whereas Michael and Nike were partners in the company, mm. uh, and that company today is selling two and a half billion dollars worth of product. It uses the logo of Jordan. Yep. It's owned by Nike, Jump but man. it's shared very, very strongly by uh, Michael Jordan with Nike. So it's a, it was a very I- clever idea by uh, Phil Knight, and my- Michael, of course, has implemented it very well. Yep. So it's a big success. Huge, huge deals, and, and you know, great stories around it, because I'm sure many of these things, not everyone has ever heard, um, ever seen the shoes, but uh, to That's hear about true. it and, and how it all came about is, is incredible. So uh, let me uh, continue a bit on that note. Uh, and that is, you know, sort of what I call the learning part of it. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit from you. You know, what are you think are your the things you learned? Um, and I, I want to focus on the things which worked. Uh, well, later we'll we'll touch on the things which didn't work necessarily. But uh, you know, how did it? You know, where are the things you you did and you 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 were, or you were doing um, uh, during your time? You know, whether it's starting the business, you know, what are the pieces which you really feel uh, is great to share for others um, who either wants to start a business, whether it's in sports or in general? Um, what are sort of the key points you see? Well, I think there's a couple of things. First, it's all about people. It's uh, mm. it's not about companies as such. It's about people who run companies. The sports marketing world is a very lucrative world, but it's a very small world. Uh, take, yes. for example, Marcus. Uh, you know, you're from Kuala Lumpur. I'm from Washington D.C., and yet we've known each other and worked together in the sports world for over 20 years. That's right. And that's really the case. You you could list uh, as I could, you know, 10 people that you've worked with in companies and in businesses that are very, very important. Yeah. And you have certain relationships. Like I had a relationship with Dosser and and uh, Adidas for years. And, you know, when you put people like Lendl, Connors, Ash, Noah, Edberg, yeah. uh, all with uh, with one company like Adidas, you really build a relationship that, it, that is lasting and permanent. So yeah. a couple of things on the learning side. You want to really understand it's about people. Yeah. It's not anything else. It's about getting and, and having relationships. How do you do that? Well, it's your people skills. You got to work to get to know the people. Uh, for example, I don't think it, uh, to, in today's world with email and the smartphones, I always preach that you, you can't make any great deal or important deal without meeting in person. You want to go see the person when you're. If it's an important deal, if you're negotiating something, you can't do it by email. I agree. Uh, the easiest thing in the world is someone say, "Well, we're going to go in another direction." Sorry. Well, what does that mean? You know, you have no idea. But if you go see somebody and he says, "Gee, we're not interested because," then you can you can get a much better flavor and understanding. Or the reverse, which is what you're trying to do is how do you get him to say yes and work out a favorable deal? So that's the first thing. You, you should do it in person if you can. Secondly, right. you have to be very, very persistent. You're going you know, to get a lot of no's, and you just got to keep coming back and working at it if you think you're in a good position or in a right position. And you got to be flexible. You've got to really understand the market. So when you go in and ask for something, an endorsement contract, let's say, the value of, I'm making this up, but let's say the value of a watch deal is $100,000. So you go into Rolex or Citizen or some of these well-known watches, and you can't come in and say, yeah, I want four million, you know, I want 400000 or I want a million dollars. That is way, way above the market. If the market, in my hypothetical, is a hundred, then you want to come in maybe 150 and when you work it all out, you'll be at 100 and 110. That's what you hope. Yeah. Now, you can raise that depending on the market. But you have to be, what I'm saying is you have to be realistic. You have to know the market. You have to understand the people. And you have to be reasonable in your negotiations. 
and do your homework, right? I think it's really what you're talking about. It's it's exactly. about exactly. you know certain things we all know because we've just been doing this for so long. But you know, there's still things which we all have to learn. And doing that homework, understanding the client, and as you already said, you know, really understanding what's the value. I've seen it so many times in deals where, you know, a client and let's say a rights holder, right, which we all represented over the years. And they have just these unrealistic expectations, right? You know what what is the value of the market, really, or in the market, and they're coming and having ideas which are, could be ten times the size. And you really is, I think it's important, as a, especially in the agency world, that you manage that expectation of the client, right? And you got to tell the client the truth. You got to say, wait Correct. a minute, you're way out of line. That that price is too high. Correct. We're not going to get that. Yeah. And one of the problems today, I think, certainly in tennis and in basketball. The money is so big yep. for the top players that many of the agents do not like telling the, the client the truth. Hmm. They're always out trying to you know, impress him and trying to fear that he's going to fire them or something. You can't fear uh, being fired. You've got to tell the client the truth. The, be- the better you do that, the more he's going to respect you. When the, when the going really gets tough in a negotiation, he's going to trust you. But if you're always stroking him and always, you know, I used to say in recruiting to people, I'm not a masseur. If you want somebody <laughs> to stroke you and tell you all the good things that you are, fine. But that's not me. I'm going to tell you the truth, whether you like it or whether you don't. And of course, over years, you build up a reputation. So I'm not worried today about being fired, but uh, I worry that some of the young people will not always tell the client the real accurate factual situation for fear that they're not impressing him or they're going to lose him. Yep. And that's a terrible weakness in our, in our industry. Yeah, no, I love the I love the quote. You can't fear to be fired. I, I'm gonna have to remember that exactly. one. I love it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, now obviously you build up the company um, over many years, and then eventually you did sell uh, the company uh, and sort of moved on into a slightly different position and role there. Well, what is your learning out of that? What, what, what did you take well, away from that? It was an interesting experience. Uh, I ran ProServe as the owner and the CEO for 27 years. Yep. And I sold it uh, I sold it in about 2000, year 2000. And one of the reasons I sold it was I had done it a long, long time, and I wanted to sort of try to do some other things, like teach and like write, hmm. and, and still stay in the sports business. And I, had, I have identical twins, daughters, and I went to both of them and said, do you want to be in the business? Do you want to somehow participate? And they both said no. They really... I decided, well, you know, I could sell it. But I I did a couple things happen. I'd say for two or three years before that, I was looking for a partner to be like 50-50, a bank or someone, an insurance company or someone to be a partner. And what I found out very quickly is in in a major deal like that where you're selling a company, the buyer or the investor with you, he wants control. He doesn't want 50%. He wants 51%. And I didn't want to give up control. So yeah. for about two years, I danced around trying to sell a, you know, a part of it, 25%, 40%. Mm. And it's really hard to do that well. And so finally, in 2000, I decided I really wanted to try something else. And I got an offer that I thought was attractive from a, a company called SFX, which was a, on a stock market. And it was mainly, they were in music and they were in sports. And uh, mm. so I did sell it to them. I and I was on and I realized and learned very quickly that when you when you sell it, you know, they want to run it and you're really out of the picture pretty quickly. Yep. And that 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 was OK. I, I didn't experience that. I didn't know it until it happened. But I was agreeable to it because they really bought 100 percent. So they're in charge. Uh, I did it for them. I stayed on as the chairman, I think, for two years. And then I around 2002 or three, I went out and started, you know, working for myself and other jobs and other companies. I was working for SFX and then they were bought by a company called Best. Yeah. I mean, one thing is, uh, definitely it sounds like at least uh, there's some, you know, similarities to, to myself. I've been doing, I've been running my business for 22 years, is that you really didn't have an exit plan until you decided you wanted to go out, right? There wasn't, you weren't building up a business to sell it. And no, you weren't. You, weren't it was, that, you were doing it yeah. because you were loving what you were doing, really, right? Precisely. And in a way, in a way that's bad, but in a way it's natural. Uh, I didn't have a succession plan until I suddenly decided I wanted to sell. And then you look around and you got three or four people, buyers, and you're not sure who you want to sell to. And you're not sure what your role, if any, is going to be thereafter. 
But I, I discovered that the, the bigger the deal, the more the buyer really wants to control it and run it. Yep. And you're really out of the picture very quickly in most of these deals. You stay on for a transition, maybe one or two years as the chairman, and then you're gone because that's what they're buying is to see if they can expand it and grow it in their own way. Yep. And they oh, sort of, in many cases, don't want you around. They don't want you in the, in the way in a, in a certain – they want your advice, but they don't want you making decisions and controlling it. Yeah. No, for sure. Now that, that leads perfectly into the, into the next sort of uh, part of the topic here is, um, you know, where do you see? You know, you did some certain things which you could have done better. In hindsight, is all we all smarter, of course. Um, you know, but if you now go back and, of course, look at things whether you've done it pro serve or, or in other parts of your life, where do you feel you feel um, things you could have, you you with you knowing it now you would do differently. Well, I think there there are two or three really major mistakes in looking back that right after I had sold it and worked with other companies, I realized a couple of things. First and foremost, I didn't delegate well. In other words, everybody sort of wanted to see me and make the deal with me and so forth. And that that's a big ego trip and you feel great and you're going to get everything done. And then you don't build lieutenants around you. You don't delegate enough so that you, you don't grow. If, if, if everything's going to your office and not uh, i'm talking about the big deals i'm not we had you yeah. know 300 people in sports but yeah. 16 offices but i'm talking about the major deals you really got to have a, a a president or a coo who who has authority who really can make deals and run the place mm. and that was a weakness on my part i didn't think i don't think i, I delegated well enough right. and then secondly i think uh, you you want to make sure that you always keep your word. As I told my daughter when she got into the business a little bit later, I said, you know, you keep your word no matter what. If you make a bad deal, you, you eat it. You honor your word because it's a very, very small industry. And if you yep. if you jerk people around and change things and don't keep your word, boy, the word gets out really fast and you can't get the, you can't get your reputation back. So that's another thing you you got to really be honor your word and, yep. and i tried to do that always the other thought i did that there was another big weakness i never had a strong uh, i had a guy who was called a comptroller who was doing the financials i needed a really tough cfo right. that would manage the finances of the business and i i would say that to anybody if if you're starting a new business and let's take your case marcus i don't know exactly where you are other than in the 22 years but i suspect that you've had the best peace of mind and been the most successful when you had a really strong knowledgeable tough cfo mm. who could say no to people when they're working for you that want deals and want extra perks and want everybody always wants more and you need somebody to really run that and you can't be tied up with that or you're not out you know running the company yeah. and making new other deals so for me i never had a strong cfo and that was also my fault right. and then i think lastly uh, lastly one of the things it's a personal trait i think and i wrote this in my book I was late for a lot of meetings. You know, people people get insulted by that, and you can have all the excuses. You're busy and everything, but when you're late for a meeting, even I'm talking I'm talking more than 15 minutes. If you're five or 10 minutes late, it's no no big deal. Yeah. But if you come into a meeting 30 minutes late, the person you're dealing with thinks, well, you think your time is more valuable than his time, yeah, yeah. and he's insulted. And I really uh, I, I tried to correct that as once I sold the company because I was late for a lot of meetings, and I think people really really resent that. It's a little thing, but it grows to be a big thing. And right. that, that's what I w would say was a mistake. Amazing. Well, I appreciate you being so honest here. That, that's amazing. And I, w I wanted to bring up one more point uh, because we've had that conversation a few times at, at, in Monaco during Sportel. Um, and I remember this is always an advice you gave to me about your own lessons, and that is be careful with your overheads, right? Because at the end of the day, Absolutely. we all end up working just to cover overheads, um, especially when Don't you're 300 people so and, and, yeah. and 16 offices. And, so. and, and that's a great point. Big, in my opinion, big is not necessarily better. Yep. You know, when I was competing with McCormick all over the world, somehow I thought, you know, he had a thousand employees, he had 26 offices, he was by far the biggest, and he was the first. 
And somehow that pushed me to, to have more offices and more people. He was about two, two and a half times bigger than we were. Yeah. But it was always a pressure on us because when you're recruiting, he'd come and say, you know, we can do this all over the world. We have offices in Germany. We have offices in Hong Kong. You know, and, and there was a pressure to try to expand. And that's a bit of a mistake. You don't have to be. You don't have to be bigger to be better. You just got to have very good people, and the quality of the people is more important than the number of people. And the overhead can kill you. Yeah. You can end up with so many different people, and you can't control uh, the expenditures and, and mistakes and good things of 300 employees. It's impossible. And so, if I were to do it over again, you know, in exactly the same way, I would try to have, you know. 75 people, maybe 100 maximum, and really control those people and work with those people. It gets too big too fast, and then you're just working for overhead, in my opinion. That's true. Um, And I think it's also important, of course, systems, you know, how you integrate systems where there is a way to manage that size and manage the the growth in the right way. And that's not easy. I will hold up my hand. I'm not, I probably have not done a great job in that either. Um, So it's hard. It's not so simple, especially in in an industry like hours where it's still about a lot about creativity and as you said about the personal relationships everyone has and so um, the more the bigger it gets the more complicated it gets that's for sure but you you mentioned Mr. McCormick here and and I know that's a great topic as well I wanted to touch on um, the IMG versus ProServe days Um, you know my question to you obviously is you know did you see it as a rivalry or more as a friendship or a friendly well, it was really, it was, well, truthfully, it was really both. Uh, I, I, Mark was in there first. He, he started in golf about five years. Uh, he was a little older than I was. He was about five years ahead of me mm. when I came out and started in golf. Uh, he, he was in golf. I was in tennis. We both kept our lanes uh, for about five years. And then suddenly, both of us switched over. He started doing football, basketball. I started doing a lot of basketball all over the world with Jordan and others. Uh, James Worthy, Patrick Ewing, a lot, a lot, Ralph Sampson, a lot of great players in, in, in the 90s. And so what happened, uh, I think, with Mark, our staffs became very competitive. And particularly in tennis and basketball, we were always competing for the same same clients, and right. and that was always a, was always a battle, and uh, and I think it was very competitive. Mark, on the other hand, he and I became casually originally just good friends, and and it, it developed into a a very strong relationship, and we used to meet uh, very privately every year, twice a year alone, just the two of us. We'd meet wow. at the Creon Hotel in Paris during the French Open, and then we'd meet at the U.S. Open in New York. And so we decided we, you know, we really developed a very, a very good friendship. And when things went bad for either one of us, we were supportive of the other uh, in in a lot of quiet ways. But the public never knew it, and sometimes our staff didn't know it because I just felt he was the best at what he did. He was the pathfinder. Yeah. I copied a lot of things he did, but he was trustworthy. He everyone viewed him as. You know, very difficult, hardcore businessman. I didn't. I viewed him as a friend, and I knew that he would honor and I could could honor. I, I tell you one story, which I think is very emblematic of it. Yes. Towards um, the end of his life, one day I get a call from him from Norway, and he says, "Doll, can we meet in New York next week uh, in my office? You know, in the morning." I said, "Sure. What's the agenda?" And he said, oh, there's no agenda. You know, we just want to see you and blah, blah, blah. So we hung up. So I said to my people, get ready because there's an agenda. He didn't call me from Norway to meet me in his office. There's something coming. So I go up to meet him, which, I, as I said, this was a, a, a this was a, not a private meeting. This was a public meeting. He had some other of his people in the meeting, okay. which was unusual. And I go up there, and he says, Donald, you know, uh, and this was a company by this time I was working for, with, which was SFX. And we had, they had bought a, a, a guy and his company, an ice skating company, hmm. and they had, they, we, we were doing a thing called the Wide World of Sports on ABC. It was a very popular show. And we had bought Dick Button, who owned the show. So we now own the show, but IMG was doing a lot of the work. They got the title sponsor, and they ran the event. And so we were sort of partners in the event because we had bought the title to we bought the assets but they were doing the work so mark said look it's it's really unfair he said what i'd like to do is i'd like you to come back to me with an offer of how we solve this problem and whatever you offer me we will accept 
And I said, wait, wait a minute, Mark. I work for the guy you're negotiating with. I'm not objective. And he said, no, no, I understand that. And that's really why I want you to do it. We will trust you to be fair. Whatever you come back with, we will accept, which was quite remarkable. And so I go back to my people and there's a guy in North Carolina who's negotiating for us. And I said, John, you know, let me let me help you with that. Let's try to figure out what's a fair deal. I'll go back to Mark and I think he'll accept whatever we propose. And this guy was very in charge of all events. And he said, no, 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 we're going to get close. We're, we're, we're doing good, fine. You know, you really should stay out of it. And I said, let me tell you something. If we don't make a deal, they're going to just change the name of the event. They have the title sponsor and they have the staff on, on ground to run it. And you're going to lose the event. He said, no, no, that won't happen. That won't happen. So after about three weeks back and forth, I go back to Mark and I said, Mark, I'm really sorry. I can't make you an offer because my people want to negotiate with your people. And so I, there's no, no, nothing I can do about that. I've tried. It's not going to happen. He said, okay, but please tell them, you know, what's going to happen. We're going to change the name and we're going to keep the same title and the same event, and the same date. And we're going to own the event hundred percent. I said, I've been trying to tell them that. And that's exactly what happened. Right. And then Mark actually died about three months later. That was the last time I ever saw him. Uh-huh. He went in and had a reaction to somebody who put a shot of Novocaine into his neck or something, cosmetic surgery or something, and he went into a coma, and he was in a coma for four months and then died. It was terrible. It was very unfair, very unhappy, and he really never got his due for what he had created because the ending was so was so unusual but that was the last time i ever saw mark but we yeah. we were very good friends and privately and you know, we always talked about going to a movie or going to dinner or going to a football game that's what he felt was a friendship if you could go to a, a, a football game or have dinner with somebody you liked that was a good friend and he used to say that to people I, yeah, was, uh, I, I can see that from the way you talk about it, for sure. Yeah, yeah. 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 But, uh, but at the same time, I'm almost certain, and I think you mentioned it a bit earlier already, is that clearly it also drove you, right? I mean, there was some competitiveness in there, right? I mean, you're a oh, tennis yeah. player no, and, and you're sure. an athlete in a sense as well. So there is the both had the passion to obviously be bigger and better, right? So I think that, I'm sure, helps having someone there, right, who you, you can try oh, to always measure up juices, to. The, yeah, the competitive juices. I mean, you really need people in this business that love the business, that have yes. a passion for it. Why are you still doing it? after 22 years. Why am I still doing it since 1970? Because we have a a passion for the business and we like the people we deal with. If I didn't like the business, I sure as hell wouldn't still be doing it. (laughs) It's so easy. People say, why are you still working? Because I like the business and I like the people. You're a perfect example of that. I mean, I don't see you uh, very often, but when I do, we have a common feeling and an interest in what we're doing, and we talk about it regularly, you know, what the new things are and what, what, what your, uh, what's your latest area. Maybe it's, uh, you know, cycling, maybe it's motor car, what, and I, maybe I'm doing something in track and field, but there's a lot of crossover. There's a lot of mutual interest, Absolutely. but it's people that motivate you at the end of the day. Yeah, that's for sure. So but before I move on, actually, I'd love to ask you a question on where do you, I mean, I know you've you know, been involved obviously in so many different things. And um, what is it? What is something maybe particular right now, um, which uh, you know you're you know particular focused on, or you know what you see with all the new technology coming in? Uh, you know, what is your perspective of you know having looked at this now for 50 years? Well, I think the the biggest new thing now, which is really uh, moving like lightning, is digital advertising. Everything's yes. moving to digital, and most people don't even know exactly what digital as such entails because it's so broad and nebulous. But, like, for example, my daughter is in charge of a content for Lagardere in New York, and she does all the content, uh, digital content, mm-hmm. of different shows for YouTube or you know, Facebook or whatever we're working on. Try you, you put together a show and then you try to sell it. Yep. But to me, that's a whole new area. I'm not great at that, but I certainly see it coming. It's there now. And the dollars from advertising for sponsorship that you and I did events for years are all moving towards digital advertising because the new the new people out there, the world out there lives on these phones and lives on um 
their internet and their you know their computers, and they're not they're not worried about television. They're not. I know people don't even have phones anymore in their house. They don't have landlines. They just use you know they use their cell, their their uh, uh, smartphone. It's it's incredible. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think the digi- digital, the digital uh, disruption in any business in the world, um, clearly we see in our industry as well. And, and like you said, um, whether it's content-driven or or other forms of it, OTT, of course, is the buzzword in in uh, in the media distribution space now. And what I see again, maybe see whether you agree with me, is I do see that there is a what's current OTT is disrupting the traditional broadcast industry at a level where it isn't just um, changing the game, but it is currently actually, I think, um, destroying value. The rights fees of you know certain projects and, and certain properties around the world have always grown over the years. Right? We've always seen it how the US exactly. Open tennis grew and Wimbledon and the Brit, you know, the, the Premier League, etc. But you know, we see it now almost everywhere that the rights fees are going backwards. So it's not just it, it's changing from it to a different platform. It, it literally, in my mind, it's currently destroying value. Do, how do you, do you see that a bit as well? It's, no, I, it's certainly lessening value. There's no question. Yeah. There's got to be an adjustment at some point, but the days of paying big, big dollars, you know, for a televised event, except for a few, maybe Premier League, maybe the NFL and football in America, there's only three or four, you know, products that are going to, that are going to condemn NBA basketball that might continue demanding high fees, but everything else is going to get lower and lower because that, that's what's happened. Just exactly what you said. Yeah, so, uh, there's, there's, a, there's a bit of a spiral there at the moment, and, and it's an interesting one. You know, it's hard to tell where that, where it will you know go really. Uh, uh, well, Donald, I could go on forever here, um, but I'm also conscious of your time as well as uh, you know listeners' time here. So I want to sort of slowly get to the cool down phase of it um, sure. after a great match we just had here. Um, so maybe you know you have a message for you know an aspiring sports entrepreneur or someone who's you know just looking at starting their business. Uh, you know, what would be your wisdom you could share with them? Well, I think a couple basic things. First of all, understand it's all about people. So you have to have good people skills. Secondly, you really want to keep your word when you make deals or when you're talking to people. Don't try to impress people, you know, promise too much. Don't over promise and under deliver. Keep your word, be realistic. But I think the most important aspect is have a passion for what you're doing. Uh, yeah. If you really care and like it and, and want to be the best at it you can be, you will really move on, move forward. But you have to be, besides passion, you have to be persistent. You have to continue. I mean, you know, it's easy to say never take no for an answer, but there's a certain tone to that. Uh, obviously, somebody says, I'm not going to do the deal. They're not going to do the deal. But you've got to persist and and really uh, believe in yourself and believe your product is good and then be flexible, be realistic. Because remember, one of the things, you don't have to win every point or every dollar. It's all about renewals as well. You don't want to just be a one-shot transaction. Mm-hmm. You want the people that you deal with in certain areas want to come back and make other deals with you later. And the only way you're going to do that is to be fair and reasonable and realistic when you're dealing with these people and still, you know, keep your word and be darn hard and persistent. You've got to, and this is a, it's not just a glamour. It's a very difficult competitive business in the sports world. Absolutely. Everybody wants to be in it. Everybody thinks it's easy. It's not easy and it's not glamorous, but it's fun. That's really, <laughs> that's really the thing. It sure is. Now, I actually I wanted to ask you one more question here. I'm having too much fun. Um, you're tired of your second book, never make the first offer except when you should. What is yeah. the what what is the the meaning behind? It? I mean, I can figure it probably out myself. Where I know it, obviously reading it. But uh, no, share with share with, the, share with it, us. It was, well, what happened was the publisher of the book, uh, who had published my first book twenty years earlier, he wanted the title "Never Make the First Offer" because he thought that you know, I, and I went along with that. I thought it was a good title. Yeah. Then at the very last minute. He decided to put a parentheses under it, across it, it says never make the never make the first offer. And then underneath it said parentheses, small print, except when you should. And he thought that was clever and tricky and so forth. I I didn't like that part, but I think it's a realistic manner. You, you know, yep. you have to really evaluate when you're trying to make a, a deal. What's a fair deal? It's really important. 
that you try to make a fair deal because then that will re- bring bring you back. In this world of sports and sports business, it's a small world. Everybody gets to know everybody else in different ways. And you'll say, you know, so-and-so is an expert in international media. And so that's the, you're dealing with ESPN. There's two guys there that yeah. you know are running all their international media. So that's who you're dealing with in that case. Well, you want to have a re- relationship with them, a good one. And so uh, I think, you know, in, when you're negotiating directly, particularly in basketball or football, I like the, the club to make the first offer. Mm. Why? Because they, they, they sort of, you get a feel then where they are and what they're, what they're talking about, what they want to do. Yep. And you, you, you can sense right away. You learn, first of all, in marketing, let me say one thing, listen. The good marketers are listeners. You've got to learn from listening. The hard sellers that do all the talking are lousy sellers and lousy marketers, in my opinion. Everybody's out trying to push, push, push. They're, they're, not, they're not the good sellers, the good marketers. You've got to listen to learn. And when I say never make the first offer, I want to hear what they have to say. And for, for example, in the basketball world, the NBA, if somebody makes a bad offer or a different offer, you say, wait a minute. You're the ex. He said, "Comes as well." The guy's hurt. You know, he didn't play very well in college. I said, "Wait a minute, wait a minute. You're the expert. You drafted him. I didn't. Hmm. Now give me a fair offer. You're the one. You're the one that wants him. Right. I mean, it's very easy to turn that around because it's also true. I mean, you know, they're the ba- they're the basketball experts or the football experts that are making the draft. So it's pretty easy to turn that around when they start." criticizing the player because they want to knock the price down. Yep. You say, wait a minute, wait a minute, you made the you picked him six in the country. I didn't. So you don't you know how good he is. Don't don't tell me he's bad. You wouldn't have picked him. So it's very easy to turn that around uh, as long as you as long as you know the market. You really you mentioned that earlier and and again <clears throat> besides never making the first offer, you really gotta know the market. Mm. And today it's so much easier than it was Years ago, I mean, you know, the newspapers now, all these uh, player associations print their salaries and print the contracts. So you have a lot more uh, information that really helps you in these negotiations. While we're at this topic, do you have one which you would sort of call your favorite or or the one you really enjoyed the most doing a deal for a particular athlete in whatever sport? um, I'll give you you, you one that, that A is true and B is sort of historic, uh, a, a colleague in my in my office, we were flying out to Chicago <clears throat> to negotiate a, a new Jordan contract, an extension. Mm. And his for his second contract was pretty low for what he was doing. He, you know, they won six world championships with the Bulls. Yep. We, we were on the plane, and I always said, you know, <clears throat> whatever happens, we're not going to make the first offer. Let Jerry Reinsdorf was the owner. I knew him very well, and I said, when I had outlined on a piece of yellow paper what what I wanted, what I was going to try to ask and get for Jordan mm-hmm. in a new contract. <clears throat> so we went to his lawyer's office, and we were all sitting around a conference table, and the phone rings. And uh, Jerry gets up to walk over and take the phone. Uh, it's a landline against the wall. And I'm sitting at the end of the table near him, and He's overtaking the call, and I look over at his notes, and I see the number four million dollars. And I'm at like you got to understand the times. I'm at like forty-five million, yep. which is ridiculously high, and he is ridiculously low. So I see that he's going to start at four million, and so he comes back from the phone call and sits down. And we continue the discussion. And suddenly I say to him, Jerry, let me make the first offer, which I never do. And my colleague looks at me like, what the hell are you doing? And (laughs) the reason I didn't want to start negotiating from his number of four when my number was about 45. Now, obviously, I'm not going to get 45, and I'm not going to accept four. And I think we ended up at about 35 million for one year which was historic and different. Yeah, I'm reading about so I, I, You know, it was just a fluke the way it happened. And later, I wrote Jerry a note. when I, I told the story in one of my books, and I wrote Jerry a note and said, Jerry, you know, I did peek at your number. I want you to know that. And then you took that bump. <laughs> and so I made the first offer. And he wrote me back 
And he said, did it ever occur to you that I wanted you to see my number? <laughs> ah, wow. But there we go. Very clever. I love and, it. and you'll never know. You know, we were, we were, he's a very good guy. And he said, you'll never know. But maybe I wanted you to see that number. <laughs> that is true. Well, that's true. But I guess that's also, uh, that's perfect where, when you look at your book now, I guess that really is the time where you need to make, you, you felt you had to make the exception and you well, had to start. Well, I had to make the first offer because, because you didn't want it to be so low. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a great story. I think that's a perfect story to finish um, our conversation here. Um, but I'd love one more last thing from you. That is just, um, you know, we both, I think, big believers that sports is truly a metaphor for life, right? So many things you do uh, in life. And, and I just would like you to leave sort of your your favorite metaphor of sports uh, in life uh, for, for everyone. Well, I think there's two thoughts I had on that. <clears throat> one, You know, you only get out what you put in. If you really work hard at something, you're going to get something back by your efforts. But I also think this simple phrase that Nike came up with, just do it, is brilliant. Hmm. And it's really apropos of the world we're in, you know, just do it, i.e. tell the truth, work hard, get it done if you can. But, you know, we don't need all the bells and whistles and all the BS around it. Just do it. Do it. <laughs> and if, if, if you're good at that, you know, and, and keep your word and keep your uh, relationships with people, you're going to be a success. Awesome. Fantastic. I thank you so much for your time. That was really very enjoyable, 50 minutes about here. And uh, I learned so many things. I scribbled a bunch of stuff down. Um, I'm going to listen to this again after we're done. Um, again, thanks so much, Donald. Uh, and I'm sure we'll talk again some more soon. Well, Marcus, it's been fun. I've always admired and respected you as a friendly competitor I would call it although even more friends than competitors because Absolutely. you're over in different areas of sport but it's been a fun and pleasure for me to share it with you and uh, I wish you good luck in all this uh, podcasting I think that's a great idea uh, to educate people around the world all, of all different kinds of sports uh, yeah that, exactly it's been fun. I've been, that's I've the idea and, and who knows well, I'm sure we'll have maybe we'll have another session soon on it but uh, I wish you a great morning there in Washington and good night from Kuala Lumpur Okay. Thank Cheers. you. Talk Bye-bye. to you. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye bye. The Sports Entrepreneurs by Marcus Lure Podcasts are a collection of interviews and stories. All content in this podcast is the copyright of Marcus Lure. Reproduction and distribution of the presentation without written permission of the owner is prohibited. All rights reserved.